due to a math area error, I was uh, born, and even though I was born, that's not the error, uh, but I was, <laughs> I was born early by a month, even though it was a C-section, okay? Uh, and so they opened my mom up, discovered that I was not ready for life, and threw me in a bubble for a couple of weeks. So hence the shortness of breath. Uh, it comes with being a preemie, uh, even 39 years later. So um, we are taking a, a couple of weeks to talk about transition. And there is the self-evident and obvious reason we're doing that, as my family is transitioning out of Calvary the Hill and moving down to California, which means all of you are in transition as well. But have you looked around in the last few years? Transition is the only normal, constant, regular part of our lives right now. It just seems to be everywhere. You're experiencing it at work or in your career or in your school setting or culturally. Uh, you know, have you just watched the license plates as you drive around Seattle lately? They're from all over the country. I think I've hit the full 50-state bingo in one month alone um, because there's so many people in motion, so much change. And so it's helpful to look at. And so we've called this series In, Cra- in Case of Transition. And let me just ask you up front. What do you do if you're on fire? Stop, drop, and roll, right? We've learned that since we were children. How many of you have actually had a chance to apply it? Hopefully none of you, right? But we know it, and it's simple. And I wanted to do the same thing. Transition is something that happens. I would say that it's more likely than being struck by lightning. I would say it's more likely than catching on fire, okay? And so we need to know what to do, and we've kind of just summed it up in three steps. We need to remember to look up to open our hands and to lean in. So last week we talked about looking up and we saw that in all the major transitions that we find across the canon of scripture, the advice, the prophetic word for the moment, the thing that Christians, God's people are encouraged to do is always the same. Remember that God is with you, right? We saw it everywhere. And so that's look up. It's, uh, you know, we can feel like, Peter walking on water and seeing the winds and the waves and starting to sink. And what he really needed to do was just look up and see the fact that Jesus, the miraculous, the all-powerful, the God in the flesh who had called him onto the water was still right there with him, right? That's what Peter needed to know in that moment. It's what we need to know in this moment. And today I want to talk about this idea of open hands. And I want to look at a particular period of drastic transition in the life of God's people, in the life of Israel. And so here we are in Isaiah. And Isaiah is a large book. It has as many chapters, 66, as our Bible has individual books. It's the longest of what we call the major prophets, major in size, okay? His message, though, is a pretty simple one. He's talking to a people who are in rebellion, the people of Israel who have forsaken God his law, worshiping other gods, offering sacrifices to idols, living in ways that do not reflect God's character. And they've done this now for generations. So he's not the first to warn them, but he warns them that the time of judgment is coming and that another people group from far away, from Babylon, modern-day Iraq, are going to come, surround Jerusalem, destroy it, and deport the Jews. They're going to be removed from the land that God has given them. Okay? Now, this is so significant if you're a Jew in Isaiah's day. 
Because the land is everything. The land is evidence of God's power. It's evidence of God's blessing. It is what was given by covenant. It is where the temple is in Jerusalem. So many things are intertwined in this. And so when Isaiah says this is going to happen, there's plenty of others who disagree. Plenty of false prophets who go, come on, we are God's people. This is God's temple. But Isaiah's message doesn't stop there. It's not just a message of judgment. It's a message of hope. And so he says, God is effectively going to sustain you in Babylon. And one day he will bring you back. And then he's going to do something new. And so we get to the late chapters of Isaiah, the ones that speak of Jesus, of the servant who's going to come and suffer on behalf of Israel and grant the possibility of forgiveness and empowerment and righteousness and create a new people. And that leads all the way, not just to a new Israel, but a new heavens and new earth. It's a massive, big picture of what God is doing, okay? And here we are in chapter 43, and what Isaiah is trying to do is speak to a people, again, who we should probably imagine are at this moment surrounded by the armies of enemies, Okay, Jerusalem is under siege, and Isaiah is speaking to a people, and they remember the great military miraculous works that God has done, the times that they have been delivered before, the times that God has been their mighty warrior and conqueror. And what we'll see here is Isaiah wants them to be open to something new. Which brings us to transition. So read with me here in chapter 43, looking at verse 15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Let's pray. God, open-handedness is difficult. It's counterintuitive. It's vulnerable. It feels unsafe, and the truth is, we are pattern people. We repeat even the worst of errors over and over again because they're safer than the unknown. But you are a God who, even though you never change, even though you are always the same, your ways change. What you're doing right now changes. You invite us into new places. As Isaiah says here, behold, I'm doing a new thing. You are a God that makes all things new. And so for us to be in relationship with you, we need your help to open our hands. We need you to soften our hearts. We need you to settle our fears. We need you to draw our attention to hope. We need you to inspire us to step out into unknown places, to do as Abraham did and follow the call to a land that you will yet 
show us. And so we ask for that help this morning, and we pray that we would be able to see where Isaiah's word to his people in his day is your word to us in our day. We ask that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Consider with me the content of just verse 15. Basically, what we get there is God self-IDing who's speaking. Look at what he says. He says, I am the Lord, your Holy One. And then he says something really interesting. The creator of Israel. The language of creator is not uncommon. It's spread across the Bible. It's one of the things that's unique about the God of Israel among other gods. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. That's the first thing we're told about God in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. But here he says, I am the creator of Israel, and that language isn't common at all. Okay. I am the father of Israel, sure. But here, it's almost as if he connects the dots between the founding of a nation and the beginning of time and space. Right? The language seems here intentional. There's other ways he can say, I made you my people. There's other ways he can say, I called you out of Egypt. He says those things all the time, but here he says, I am the creator of Israel. The language is one of beginnings. You know, we have this Latin phrase when we talk about the creation of the world by God, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And to some degree, Israel's creation was like that because it started with a barren woman who was post-menopausal, and her hundred-year-old husband. That's where God begins with the nation of Israel, an old couple without any kids. It's miraculous. And his son has a barren wife, and his son has a barren wife, right? And so over and over, God is sending the message, I'm doing a new thing, a thing that only I can do, a miraculous thing. And we see the same thing in the formation of Israel, as God sends ten plagues and turns a group of enslaved people into his people, takes Pharaoh's people and says, these are now mine. With a miraculous and mighty hand, he leads them out. And even their crossing through the Red Sea, which is referenced in this passage, Paul tells us that that's kind of like a birth. It's kind of like the end of the travail, the laboring, and behold, a new people as they pass through the river, as they cross through, in Paul's language, the language of baptism. And just like when we become part of God's people through the gate of baptism, it's a new beginning. But what's really striking about this passage is he starts in that place, and he evokes the imagery of that place. Verses 16 there, um, all the way through 17, this is all the language of the Red Sea. Read it with me. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, right? When the waters are parted, where a place that is water becomes path, right? That's the exodus. That's the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his armies are coming. And Moses says to the people, stand still and see the salvation of God. And he extends his staff and the waters part and they walk through on dry ground. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. In fact, he says, not only does he make a way in the sea and a path in mighty waters, but look at verse 17, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down and they cannot rise. Right? That's what happens next. Israel gets across, uh, Pharaoh and his chariots get into the sea, it comes crashing and they drown and that's the end of Egypt and their armies. It's the end of the chasing of the people of Israel. He says they're extinguished, quenched like a wick. 
I would suggest to you what Isaiah is doing here is reminding us of God's resume. And again, not unique. This event in Israel's history was constitutional. What I mean is it was seen as a beginning and it was seen as a defining beginning. What makes Israel Israel? Again, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians, what makes the church the church? We've all been baptized. But he says the same thing about Israel. What made Israel Israel? They all passed through the Red Sea. It's constitutional. And it's also symbolic of a greater story, the story we call the Exodus, the one that reaches back to the miraculous birth of a deliverer in Moses and stretches all the way through the wilderness until they enter into the promised land under Joshua. It's a big story of God taking a people and giving them a land and setting up a nation and giving them a law. All of these parts come together and this is the symbol of it. This is the icon of it. Okay, And so in the same way, we might think of the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air and the the American flag waving at the very end of the Revolutionary War and the beginning of our independence. It's constitutional, right? In 1776, we declared ourselves a nation, but that picture is symbolic of a bigger story, of a Boston Tea Party, tea being thrown into the sea and no taxation without representation, of an entire campaign of war, of an establishing not just of a declaration of independence, but a constitution, And when we evoke those things, we evoke our identity. This is the story of America. This is what makes us us. That's how this story was to the Jews. In fact, they were commanded to regularly revisit, review, and reflect on just this event. Hence the Passover. The Passover was an annual observation where the Jews would do what? They would remember they would retell the story of what God did for them. And why were they to do it every year? Because it is foundational to who they are today, not just who they were then, right? It is constitutional in that sense. So, you're a Jew in Isaiah's day and age. You know this history. You've sat at the Passover Seder. You've recounted the story. You've read the Old Testament. And suddenly, look at verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Okay. He gathers us all on the rug. He has us all nodding along, and then he grabs out, and he just yanks it out from under us. Do you see that? He's doing something intentionally provocative here. He says, forget the Exodus. The Bible's most repeated command in the Old Testament is remember. And Isaiah says here, forget it. And he doesn't just say it in general about this thing over here. He says it about the Exodus, the one thing that they are supposed to remember. Why? Well, look at what he says next. He says, verse 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing. He says, stop talking about the Exodus because there's something else happening right now. And there's some sort of relationship, some sort of problem, some sort of correlation between their inability to perceive what God is doing now and their regular remembering and reflection on what God did way back then. Okay. Last week, I suggested, and I think rightly so, that when we face new things, 
reflecting on what God has done before is stabilizing for those new things. The God who did that can surely be here now. The God who was present then is surely with us now. The God who moved mountains then it can, is the same God right here in our circumstances. But there's another part that we need to remember, not just a continuity, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God's promises are faithful yesterday, today, and forever, that God's plan does not change and he's still in power on the throne. That's continuity. That was true yesterday, it'll be true tomorrow. But there's also a discontinuity. There's also a pivot. There's also a change. There's also the ability for God to do a new thing. And we need both of those ideas in mind. And the problem for Israel is that they are looking at what's happening with Babylon, with these enemies, and whether it's when they're surrounded in siege, or whether it is when they are marching on their way to Babylon, or now they are living as second-class citizens by the Chabar River. Wherever they are in that, when they think of what is God going to do, what do they think of? They say, we've been slaves before. We can remember a time where we had been put under the thumb of an evil empire and God showed up and miraculously delivered us and took us out. That's the problem. That's the place where what they're anticipating God doing is what he already did once. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm up to something new. I'm going to do something different. In fact, look at the verses after this. He says in verse 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And this is what he says. I will make a way in the wilderness. Do you catch the language there? I made a way in the water. But now I'm going to do it in the wilderness. He says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs forth. Verse uh, 19 at the end there. Make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Where he once made water dry land, now he's going to make dry land water. Okay, and then he continues, he says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Now think with me for a second. What does the wilderness mean to Israel? The wilderness is this period of time before God's provision. And God is present in it. Isaiah can say two things at once. Rivers in the wilderness reminds them of water out of the rock, right? That's part of the Exodus story. But what he's saying here is not, I'm going to bring you out of the wilderness. He says, I'm going to provide for you in the wilderness. You see that? So what he's saying here is not, I'm going to deliver you, but I'm going to preserve you. He's not saying, I'm going to powerfully take you out of this. He says, I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to do it in a way that is just as miraculous. But it is different. What does the wilderness mean for Isaiah's people? Because they don't stop in the wilderness outside of Israel. They go all the way, like I said, to Babylon, one of the great empires of the world. At this point, the Jews become urban in a level that they have never been. Israel was a tiny nation. Babylon was a massive empire. And at its capital, it was one of the great urban wonders of the world. They're in a dense city. Why does Isaiah call it a wilderness? Because they now live in the midst of a people who does not honor their God, who does not live out their law. Have you read Leviticus? So much of that is about separation, 
about keeping yourself from being ritually or morally defiled, about avoiding the Gentiles, but now they're all around you. And there's no kosher butchers because kosher law is not installed. Right now they're in a place where there is no temple to go and worship, no priesthood to offer sacrifices. This is the wilderness. It is not a place of life, but a place of death. In fact, this is exactly what Isaiah said God is going to do in judgment. He's going to take Israel, a flourishing and living people, and make them a wilderness, a place where only ostriches live, okay, a ruin. But he doesn't stop there. He has a plan for the wilderness. He's going to do something, and what he describes here is provision. Now, Isaiah is going to get to a place where streams in the desert takes on even more significant imagery, and suddenly we have the arrival of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. But it also refers to this time, this parenthetical period where Israel exists in Babylon. Has it ever been curious to you that as you read through the entire Old Testament, there's no reference to a synagogue? Not one. Have you ever noticed? By the time we get to the New Testament, there's synagogues everywhere. Where does that come from? Babylon. It was during Babylon that the Jews developed a way to worship as an exiled people. It was during Babylon that they figured out a way to maintain and sustain their identity. And it works so well that even when Israel gets back into the land and then is wiped out in 70 AD by General Titus and scattered again, they maintain their identity, their language, their religion, their culture for thousands of years without a homeland as they're scattered all over the world. How did they learn to do that? Right here. Streams in the wilderness. God is going to teach them how to be sustained as his people in a place that is not sustaining. Okay? Now, why am I revisiting? Why am I reviewing all these things? Because Israel couldn't wrap their head around this possibility. Here's how it goes, okay? For Israel's neighbors, as I said last week, the fact that they're residing in Babylon as a conquered people is evidence that they serve a conquered God, right? Everyone around them goes, if your God was so great, then why did our gods give us the victory? That's just the cultural purview of the whole world at that day. Military might equals divine power. And then there's a second layer for the Jews. Because if we were God's people... If God gave us promises, if he, uh, you know, let this happen, they, they don't believe that the gods of Babylon are more powerful, but they still have to wrestle with the fact of, where was God? Why didn't he show up? And so for some of them, it's, it's evidence that something is severely wrong, that God has forsaken his people. And they might blame God for that, they might blame their own actions, but either way, it's a dead end. It's over. And the evidence of it is all around them. No more temple. No more sacrifices, no more Passover, no more land. But God is doing something there. It's not, excuse me a second, I'll be right back. Like God has just pushed pause and he's going to go recalibrate and then he's going to do something. It's not, once you've had your time out, then we can begin again. This is disciplinary. This is judgment. But God is at work. He's doing something. 
he's tearing down, he tells Jeremiah to proclaim, but he's also building up. He's uprooting and weeding, but he's sowing seeds at the same time. Streams in the wilderness. Okay. That's why he has to say something so provocative in the middle. He's not trying to say, forget about the God who delivered you because he's gone. Right? You guys have seen enough movies where that, that angry speech has to happen. Stop thinking that so-and-so is going to provide. He's gone. We're on our own. Right? That would have been a normal message for them to hear at this time. That's not Isaiah's point. He starts with, the same God who did this is doing something. Continuity. The foundation is the same. God is still present and working. But he also recognizes that they are blind to his current work because they've assumed God's going to do what he did last time. Okay. That is the most human condition statement. Okay. That is the way we are. We are pattern people to the degree that trauma therapists will tell you that we put ourselves back in patterns of trauma because we know them so well, even though they're so destructive to us. We assume this is how it was, therefore this is how it will always be. Even Peter warns this about people who will look at the church and go, Jesus isn't coming back. That's not going to happen. Everything has gone on as it did in our days of our fathers and before then, right? Continuity is our assumption. And just because we are God's people doesn't spare us from that impulse. Here's what I would suggest. Open-handedness as a posture is not natural. I mean, just, just think about the posture yourself. How often do you do this? When I sleep, I clench my fists. And I wake up sometimes and my hands hurt. So I don't think that's normal. I'm not going to assume that's human. Okay. <laughs> It says things about me, I'm sure, but I'm only going to apply those to myself. But here's what I do every night before I go to bed. As I get really tired, I put my hands on my bed and I stretch out my hands so that my hands are extended with the hope that I can sleep through the night without balling up my fists. Okay? When I sleep, this is not natural. When you interact with other people, what is the posture we generally have with strangers or in times of danger, right? This is a self-preserving posture, okay? Let alone this one, right? But to go to someone open and vulnerable, think of reconciliation, okay? Forgiveness, if it was described physically, is described as a hug, but it's a unique hug, isn't it? Because you're going to someone who harmed you and you're seeking to embrace them, which leaves you vulnerable, okay? None of that is natural, we are not designed for new. What he is trying to do here is get them to open themselves up because the standard posture of the human heart is closed. Okay. So assume with me this morning that if you're going to be open to what God wants to do in this new, uh, this new season, that you actually have to take action. Look with me again at what he says here in verse 19. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Where's the problem there? Here's where we put the problem. God, where are you? 
God, why aren't you working anymore? God, right, we assume the absence of God because we assume we know what God's present working would look like. But here Isaiah says, no, the problem is one of perception. We're people with our eyes fully closed going, why isn't the sun shining? God is at work. And not only is he at work, but Isaiah is not the only spokesperson God has sent to prepare them for what's about to happen. Think of Jesus' disciples. How many times when you're reading through the Gospels does Jesus tell them what's going to happen? He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, I'm going to be arrested, handed over to the Gentiles, and crucified. And three days later, I will rise. He says it all the time. And when they get to Jerusalem and he's arrested, they go, what is happening? Why? Because that, that category of events of a Messiah who would be crucified by a foreign power doesn't fit in their paradigm. So they keep making it metaphorical so that it doesn't threaten what they're expecting to happen. He must mean this metaphorically. He, he must be talking about, right, whatever, but he means it literally and they can't perceive it. This is a constant struggle in the disciples because they have been trained to expect that God is going to do this, that he's going to show up, Exodus, kick the Romans' butt, kick them out of Israel and set up Israel. They're waiting for the deliverer, and they do not know how to recognize a crucified deliverer, okay? But let me remind you that anytime you read the Bible and you think, silly Jews, stupid disciples, you're missing the reason why this is not just record but scripture. This is who we are. The danger that we're presenting here is not a danger for Israel thousands of years ago. It's a current danger for you right now in your own life. For every time you go through change. Okay. So let's just talk about a few scenarios of how this plays out. How could the exodus, the evidence of God's great working, blessing on his people and commitment to his plan, how can that become an obstruction to what God wants to do right now? Well, one way is for our relationship with God to be lived entirely in the past tense. Here's what I mean. I mean, for some of us, God did something that we saw, that we knew without a doubt that changed our lives 10 years ago. And we talk about it all the time. And when people ask us about a relationship with Jesus Christ, we kind of have to pull out our calendars, dust them off, and go, well, there was this one time right? Sometimes we don't resist the new except for the reason that we've settled for the old. Exodus is enough. It is defining, it is definitive, I point to it, but in the present tense, if we ask, what is God doing now? We go, I don't know. But there's another possibility. It's the possibility I I mentioned earlier of being resistant to the new because we are comfortable with, because we prefer the old, because it's what we want. And what we really want is a God who plays by our rules, okay? And so we resist God doing a new thing 
because we're not sure we like the new thing, because we're scared of the new thing, because the new thing doesn't fit into my plans. I realized this morning that denial, denial is what he's talking about here, and it always has this feature of an inability to perceive change because you like the old. Okay, so we experience it in death. This can't be what happened, right? The fact that this person is no longer here, I reject. We experience it in our self-identity. I'm not that type of person. I'm not a bad person, right? And yet you've been taking slow steps into evil for years now, but you're mentally just cannot receive that that's who you really are. Denial. Denial is a rejection of the new because of the old. And that is another way that this plays out. We can refuse the fact that Babylon is going to win this war. We can refuse the fact that our new home and we're going to raise our children in this world, not that world, right? Back in my day, the golden years, when things were good, this whole posture is this posture. And as we'll see next week, as we look at Jeremiah's message to the people who are living in Babylon, he says, quit thinking that God is just going to reverse the clock and take you back to Israel. His will is for you here, so you might as well step into it, okay? We'll come back to that, but right now, it's this idea of perception. And I want to go back to those questions I revisited or I, I put on display earlier. God, where are you? The proper question to do the maneuver that Isaiah is calling us to here is, God, help me see where you are. Okay. It's, God, why can't I see you? It's, God, open my eyes. Okay. In fact, it's the difference between where are you because you assume the person isn't present. Where is John? He was supposed to be here. And the where are you of Marco Polo that assumes somewhere in the room this person is, but I don't know where they are, right? I need to go find them. I need to go see them. He wants them to perceive God is working on the assumption that he's present here, not absent. Okay. Now, I have no idea what changes are entailed for our church, for our congregation in the months and years to come. But I would be so grieved if the response to those changes was, well, that's not how we do things. Or, well, we've never done anything like that before. Or, well, when Justin was here. I, I hope, I hope those fra that phrase in particular never enters into your minds or hearts, let alone your mouth. Because change is inevitable. And God is present in the change, but he also adapts to it. I remember hearing a story one time about a woman who had grown up watching her mother cook this pot roast. And now she was married and in her own place, and her mother was coming from dinner, and she was like, all right, wouldn't it be great if I made my mother's pot roast? And so she's going through the recipe, and she gets to a point where she's about to put it in the oven, and she cuts the ends off both sides of the roast before it goes into the oven. And her husband says, well, why, why'd you do that? And she's like, it's just what mom always did. So she cuts off the roast, she cooks it, the dinner happens, they have a nice time, and near the end of it, her mom leans forward and says, honey, that was really wonderful, you did a great job, but what happened to the ends of the roast? And she says, well, I cut them off just like you always did. And she's like, yeah, because my pan was too small. 
See, she was observing from the outside and assuming something was significant that wasn't significant. She didn't know the context. When God brings us into new seasons, he knows the context. He knows what he did then and why he did then. And so he adjusts and, uh, you know, Isaiah calls him the wonderful strategist. Your translations probably say wonderful counselor, but that doesn't mean lie down on my couch and let me diagnose you. It's a military term. He's a wonderful strategist. Okay. He knows what is necessary in the moment. And how many times do we see stories of people who don't understand that God sees what they don't? Jeremiah, I'm calling you as a prophet. Me? But I'm young. Moses, I'm calling you as a prophet. I can barely even talk. Right? What if David said, I can't be a king. I only know how to be a shepherd. What if Paul and Barnabas said, but we love pastoring these people here. What do you mean God is saying, set us apart for something new? But now, knowing the end of the story, we go, makes total sense. Jeremiah isn't up for the job, except he is. And he suffers greatly for it, and he complains about it, which is fine, but he willingly sticks to faithfulness. God says, I'm going to make you a bronze wall. Nobody is going to be able to turn you away from being faithful. Okay? When God does new things, he empowers those new things. He sees the context. And what we do when we enter into things is we cut the ends off the roast because that's how we've always done it. So the posture here is one of openness. It's one of literally presenting yourself to God and saying like Samuel did, here I am, Lord, your servant is listening. Okay. In fact, that's a good transition. Let's, let's just focus on that one for a minute. Samuel's got an odd life. He was a miraculously born baby, and because of that miraculous birth, his mom gives him to the temple. He's raised away from home in the service of the temple since he's just a tyke. He's taken care of stuff around being raised by, uh, being raised by Eli the priest. And to be honest, Eli's not a great dad. You just have to look at his biological kids to know that he's not a great dad. But it's all that Eli knows. And so he's laying in the dark in the middle of the night, and God himself, the God that Eli or Samuel has been serving since he was little, speaks to him, calls him by name. And Samuel naturally goes, it must be Eli who's calling me. And he runs to Eli, wakes him up, and says, here I am, what did you want? He goes, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And it happens again. And finally, Eli goes, it's not me, but that doesn't mean you're not being called. I think the Lord is calling you, Samuel. So next time, when you hear the voice, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And again, I want you to reflect on the continuity and the discontinuity in that story. Eli has been trained to hear and obey. He's done it his whole life. Can you imagine, you know, a 10-year-old kid who hears their boss calling for them in the middle of the night and gets up and runs to them? This is his go-to. He is trained to obey. The discontinuity is now he's going to hear the God who made him and called him. And in those days, Samuel tells us, the word of the Lord was rare. And he becomes the one who hears the Lord, who perceives the word and conveys it to others. He didn't know what his destiny was. 
He didn't know what he was called to, but he had to go through that same perception. Maybe it's not an obstacle. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it's not the voice of my employer. Maybe it's the voice of the living God, right? Those things have to be tried. They have to be tested. But before they can do any of those things, they have to be perceived. This is why uh, the time of prayer that Amy and Stephanie has started is so significant because we are in a season where we need to tune our ears to the God who has things to say to us today. And so I would encourage you during this season to be open-hearted, to be asking, okay, God, in all of the change, where are you working now? What are the new things you're doing? Help me to perceive them. Where are you calling me to step into new things? And, and this is not a time to be saying, well, I've never done those things. God wants to do new things. That's what he says here. Let me read it to you again, and I want you to hear it as speaking over the moment that we are in and directly to you. Behold, God says, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And then notice the character in these closing verses of the God who calls us into new things. He says he's going to do this to give drink to my chosen people, verse 21, the people who I formed for myself that I might declare, they might declare my praise, okay? Two things there. Formed for myself means I know what I built you for. I know what I'm calling you to. I know what this next season entails and I've been orchestrating everything to prepare you for it. And also, that they might declare my praise. All of the I can'ts, all of the I'm afraid, eventually has to bow down to the fact that God has designed these things to be impossible with you, but possible with God. To do things that you could not do on your own, so that you walk out the end going, I don't know what just happened, but glory to God. And so open-handedness when you're talking about a sovereign, almighty being who made you and who you're accountable to means surrender. It's vulnerable because you're no longer in control. It's you actually stepping out of the throne of your life and saying, please take the seat that was made for you. And that's a terrifying thing. Think of how many times Jesus draws a line in the sand for those who want to follow him. The rich young ruler comes and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you know the law. And he lists off a few of the Ten Commandments. And he's like, I've done all those things since I was a kid. And he says, this one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, sometimes we read that as a general entry point for Christianity and then we're stuck because we're like well either I need to do that or maybe my Christianity isn't real I would suggest it's something different I would suggest that he knows the very depths of this man's heart and he knows the one obstacle the one thing that his hand isn't open on you remember all the way back in the sixth sense where Bruce Willis's character is not perceiving things correctly I don't think I have to spoil the movie to say that but the way that the director, Shyamalan, plays it out is constantly Bruce goes to a door and tries to open it, and it's always locked. He can never get through. 
And after everything starts to unravel and he realizes what's real, he looks down and in front of the door is a table. And that's why the door wouldn't open. It's not locked. There's an obstacle in front of it. Selling everything you have and giving to the poor doesn't open the door to salvation. But it can be the thing you keep in front of the door. It can be the thing, and God's just saying, hey, if you want to come through the door, you, you got to move that first. He knows this guy intimately and fully. He knows every temptation and difficulty. And even there, those line-in-the-sand moments are an encounter with the living God who knew you and who knows what's coming and who knows what's at stake and speaks honestly. But as Augustine loved to say, God, empower me for what you command and then command what you will. Right? And so we are entering into a new season as a church. And the hardest part about that new season is not just that it's no longer old. Old is good, it's beautiful, it's comfortable, it's traditional. It's to be something we're grateful for, to reflect upon, and sometimes it's even constitutional. But God desires to do new things, things you haven't thought of, things you are not yet willing for, things you cannot yet perceive. What if right now in all the chaos and mess of this post-COVID Seattle we find ourselves in, what if God is right now at work? And that's not a what if. He is. But are we tuned and trained to see it, or are we too busy weeping and bemoaning what has been supposedly lost? Remember not the things of old. Remember the one who did the things of old. Absolutely. But remember not the things of old. Behold, God says, I'm doing a new thing. It's springing forth. Do you not perceive it? O ye of little faith. Let's pray. God, if we're honest, there are so many things in our life that like Ben Stiller's character in, uh, in Meet the Parents, we hold on to with our kung fu death grip. We're just locked onto it. This is the way it is. This is how things are done. This is the point of no return. This is the area that I can't thresh in, uh, step into. This is the impossible. We, we draw all of those lines, and, and we do it, Lord, because we live in a dangerous world. But you are the God who brings streams in the wilderness, who turns a dangerous place into a paradise, who takes the impossible and makes it possible, who calls us into things that we would never call ourselves into, who knows how to bring water out of the rock. And so I pray, Lord, in this time of transition that for each of us, we would take time privately and corporately, and we just pray, God, with your help, by your strength, that you would pry open our clenched fists. That, that even if it, it requires us to literally run out of our own strength so that all we can do is surrender, like Jacob, at the end of a night of wrestling and say, all right, God, you win, but just bless me before you go. Whatever you have to do to make us open to what you are doing right now, to the new day that is springing forth, we just ask, with fear and trembling, but we ask that you would do it, Lord. Because this is what we mean when we pray, your will be done.
when we pray your kingdom come, when we proclaim you as Lord of our lives, as when we call you Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, both the author and the finisher of our faith. And so God, give us ears to hear and then speak. Give us eyes to see and then move. Give us tasks to step out into and then demonstrate that with your presence we can walk even on the wind and the waves across the water with even a little bit of faith because our God is this big, we can say to that mountain, be moved and it will move. Help us to remember and to give thanks, but also to tune into what you're doing now, to see it with fresh eyes and to enter into the new thing that you desire to do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's worship together.